Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path, where we share a modern take on timeless wisdom to help you develop unshakable inner peace so that you can live a liberated life. I'm your host, Victor Pierantoni. On these episodes, we interview guests who are exemplary in living a liberated life or who are sharing methods in the world that are helping people do exactly that in their own way. So on this special episode, I am honored to introduce you to Dr. Jimmy Leonette. He is a good friend of mine. I call him Jimmy. You can call him Dr. Leonette. It's all good. No, I'm kidding. He's a really awesome guy, and I'm really, really excited for this episode that we just recorded. So Dr. Leonette has worked in many aspects of healthcare, including an investigator with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, research assistant, medical technologist, occupational hygienist, acupuncturist, and is a practicing chiropractic physician for over 15 years. He's earned certifications in neurodevelopment disorders, functional medicine, certified medical examiner, and multiple chiropractic techniques. He has authored a chapter and given presentations on biometrics. His focus is to address the epidemic of functional disconnection between the brain and the body that is often neglected. So this interview actually blew my mind because it helped me just confirm a lot of my own history and the things that I've experienced and how I was disconnected from my body for so many years, which resulted in me experiencing chronic pain. And Dr. Jimmy gives a detailed description of exactly what was going on, how I was able to heal myself and the practices that I use, as well as the practices that he uses to help people to become connected with their bodies. So this interview is amazing. We had a great talk. We cover a variety of topics and philosophies, and I know you're going to absolutely love it. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So you were, you were just telling me about how you brought your program, like you brought a lot of clarity into like the program and how you deliver it. What, first of all, what is the program that you deliver now and what inspired the clarity? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a holistic health approach based on the neurodevelopment model. So we look at the way the brain functions because the brain controls all parts of the body and the brain actually needs the body for development. And a lot of times you work with people and their insertion point to restore or improve overall health is really high up on this pyramid. So the, you know, the model I'm refining as we go down, it um, encompasses everything from what I call binary state all the way up through the basic, like nerve development that you have up through your brain, your body up to sensory integration, all the way up into thinking and language, which I know, you know, really well, and then on up into academics and then into like mentalization or executive function. And then, you know, we can even toss in some consciousness at the end there. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what, uh, what originally, cause you're, you're a chiropractor and you've been doing this for a while. What helped you kind of learn that, that brain body connection or not, not just learn it cognitively, but experience it like with the people that you've treated over the years, like what, what, what was it that kind of gave you that realization and start to form formulate your work around that specifically? So, I mean, just basic chiropractic philosophy is about connecting the brain to the body. It's all about the nerve flow. We talk about nerve flow mm-hmm. where like, like osteopathy is about blood flow. So it's the same thing. There's, it flows from the top down inside out from the brain, down the spinal cord, and then out to your extremities. Uh, so we've always looked at it from that model and cleared up interference that way. That's what chiropractic is. Um, but we didn't really study the inputs from the body up into the brain to go through the neurodevelopmental side of stuff. So I had a son that was uh, just not quite on target. And so it was one of those things where I needed to study this so I could help him out. And it was one where I could discover where he had some breakdowns in development, some delayed um, in what would be these movements or reflexes that um, you're born with. And if those get delayed, well, then brainstem maturation gets delayed and then executive function gets delayed. So the brain maturity process is one of those things you have to look at from the body up to the brain. Very interesting. And what, what are some of these, these reflexes? Like what are some examples of them that if they're delayed, the, the brain maturation gets delayed? So one of those, it, there's several, one of them is a, a tonic labyrinthine. So it's when you move your neck forward and then when you move your neck up, if your belly flares out because you don't have stability, that would be one that shows up. There's ones where you turn your head and your elbow bends and that occurs so you can get out of the womb. 
There are ones where if um, you get pressure on the side of your lip or your cheek, you're going to raise that up and turn your head mm-hmm. so you can suck on the breast so you can get milk from your mother. Mm. Uh, but these things should disappear by ages uh, four to six months. Mm-hmm. Some of these go a little bit later, but those are your primitive reflexes. That's your basic uh, wiring system. So I always, for, for all those old school computer nerds, like that's your DOS, you know, that uh, that's built in on the system. And on top of that, you put windows. So then on windows, it's going to be your postural reflexes. And these are your eye stabilization. This is your coordinating with your vestibular system, your ears to your eyes. These are also like trunk control. So you can tighten down um, your core when you reach for something. So basically those are your postural reflexes. So you don't tip over in day-to-day life. And there's, there's some other ones, uh, you know, like if an adult falls, your arms go backwards. Mm -hmm. If a child falls, they put their arms up like a parachute. So they, they fall like this. (laughs) And so if you have an adult that falls that way, uh, well, they're going to get concussions over and over and over. And we want to retrain those posture reflexes back to what you should, but we also have to go to the primitive reflexes and see if those are still there and um, integrate those or work them out. Gotcha. Uh, the, I think what, what's fascinating <clears throat> as you were telling me that, you know, kids fall like, like the parachute arms. I, I couldn't help, but think of like when Shaq would fall during a game, like he kind of looked like that a little bit, <laughs> like he would like roll. <laughs> but, yeah. They do that. They learn a push off, you know, the basketball players, they have a special way they fall, you know, to, to draw the fouls, you know, part of it's, artsy but part of it is also so they don't get injured over and yeah, over no it, it makes perfect sense i mean like even in jujitsu like we have a very specific way of falling you know like break falling and, and whatnot um but i guess what, what what i'm curious about is when you know somebody doesn't essentially develop out of some of these uh responses or reflexes from when they're kids how does it affect like the way that they think or does it have an effect on their thoughts their emotions the way that they process information in the world Exactly. That's, it keeps you in adolescence or childhood um, state for a long time. So the brain isn't able to mature. Mm. Basically what's happening is you have your uh, right and left hemispheres and each one has its own traits and gifts. And what will happen is they won't communicate at the same rate. And so there'll be a discrepancy between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And one's going to be more powerful. So you end up getting basically anxiety. Uh, between the two, the two hemispheres, if we want to kind of like use a loose word on that. Yeah. But what shows up are some, you know, symptoms. So attention deficit, obsessive compulsive, you know, autism, some dyslexia. It depends on what part of the brain is affected and which one's stronger or weaker. But if you don't mature properly, then you end up with this disconnect. It's uh, the word that Dr. Malulu, he's the one that kind of done a lot of research on this. He calls it a functional disconnection disorder. So it's where the hemispheres just don't communicate properly. That's, that's really fascinating. What, what I think about in, when you bring that up is, I don't know if you've ever had the experience where you're talking to somebody who is very clearly an adult and they're mature in a lot of ways, but then you hit certain topics with them. And it's almost like they revert back into adolescence, like in the way that they think about certain things, or, you know, like, I think one of the big ones is relationships, right? I've, I've met a lot of people in their you know, 20s, 30s, even their 40s, that when you hear them talking about their relationship woes, they're talking about it like they're in their adolescence, like they're in high school, like with this like crazy codependency type of thing. And I'm wondering if like the, you know, when the brain doesn't develop in the ways that it needs to, if it makes somebody more susceptible to something like that. No, oh, absolutely. It would make them more susceptible to that. I mean, just basically, you know, if you don't go through that developmental process correctly or haven't reached it in the, the right sequence. So let's just say you, you walk at age eight or nine months. It's, that's not, that's not unheard of, but really you need to be crawling until about one year old. And then at your first birthday, you should start taking your first steps. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you do stuff early, you don't have enough time to develop the lower part of the brainstem, the cerebellum, the writing reflex. And so areas of the brain just don't have the capacity to mature. And that disrupts the communication between the brain and the body. So the the brain just doesn't sense where the body is in space. 
Mm. So to take that more up on a global scale, if a person doesn't have a relationship, a good relationship between their brain and their body, how in the world are they going to pick up on uh, clues from another person and get their signaling, right? So we actually receive, or we actually feel emotion by mimicking the postures that the other person presents. So as you're sitting there smiling just a little bit, right? I'm, I'm matching you even in on the inside, inside the little micro movements of my face are matching you. So I know, oh, he just had an all moment, right? And so <laughs> I did, and it's like blowing my mind right now. And I'm going to tell you about it in a second, but yes, please continue. <laughs> so if you don't sense your own body, then how can you pick up the, the clues and the signs that the other person has? And so that dramatically affects relationships. Oh, I can keep going on the left brain and right brain, but I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. So, so I, I find this fascinating because it seems like as though if somebody's not connected to their body and it, it seems like it would impact their ability to feel empathy for another person to be able to actually like read or sense the emotions that are in another and what they're doing instead, if they've learned is they're using their, essentially their inner dialogue or like self-talk to kind of be like, okay, well, they're moving like this and they're like, they're, they're going through it consciously almost to like, see like what the person is feeling versus having this kind of seamless way of responding or receiving the cues that of what emotion the person's feeling because they're disconnected from their body. So that's one. The other thing too, that I thought of, I was like, I was like, wow, well, there's a lot of instances, like even from my childhood where I was told that I, that I grew up fast or that I developed quickly. And that happened for a variety of reasons in like my actual childhood. But even like when I was a baby, I'm pretty sure I, from the stories I've heard, I started talking at 10 months, which is probably no surprise to anybody on, you know, listening to this podcast because <laughs> I do a lot of talking, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just like so fascinated by this because for so long in my life, I was disconnected from my body. I used to have chronic like lower back pain all the time. And it was only when I started actually really bringing mindfulness to my body and to my emotions and actually feeling my feelings that that pain was able to subside. So I'm just like blown away by all of this. <laughs> and because it's making so much sense, like when you had that experience internally, where you're like, Oh, he just had an awe moment. Like that was dead on. Yes. <laughs> so, so that, that in and of itself is fascinating, but I'm curious, like, what is your take on what I've just presented here regarding like, you know, growing up fast or not feeling emotions and then them turning into pain? What, what's that all about? I think you have to go back to like the development uh, stages. So when you're born, you're primarily right brain dominant up until about age two, mm -hmm. right brain does your big picture, your global ideas, and it takes in information around the world. And it knows that some of the information is relevant. It knows there's information it can use. It knows there's information you can't use. Mm -hmm. The left brain is your analytical brain. So your first memories are stored there. Um, the, the left brain gets information from the right brain. Mm -hmm. And so, but the thing is the left brain thinks it has all the information it needs. So it doesn't know that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so you have, um, sometimes when you have this disconnection, I see it a lot is where the left brain's more dominant and the right brain's underdeveloped that you have people that um, are trying to build from a bottom-up approach. And so they lack or have a reduced capacity for a big global view of the world or the system or the person they're, they're dealing with. On top of that, they're trying to build up their model of the world from a bottom-up standpoint. And so it's like, let's stack all these little details. And then when you stack them up, oh, a, B, C, and D all together equals X, right? Or, you know, if we go like uh, M N O P equals Y. So, okay, that person must be feeling this emotion because I've been, I've been taught that. So it's, a, it's basically, it's a formulation that they've come up with to understand what emotions are. Mm. And if something's off in that model, you're missing B, and then you have A, C, D, well, is it or is it not? There's, there's confusion in the world. So it's whether it's a, it's a bottom up or a top down approach uh, can really affect like how these relationships go. That's amazing. Uh, especially because what it, what it reminds me of is something I talk about all the time when I'm teaching NLP, uh, when I'm doing my trainings, one of our presuppositions of NLP is that 
the feedback you get is the quality of your communication, right? So in other words, like whatever somebody is emoting, whatever the energy is in the room from that's a result of your communication is the quality of that communication. So what I found a lot of people when they don't understand this seem to get stuck on the words that they've said. And they're like, I've said everything perfectly. Like, I don't understand what could possibly be going on here. Like, why are they reacting in the way that they are? And the content might've been fine, but the context of the emotions and the empathy that, that is, you know, they're reading and staying on the same page with is not fine. And thus the reaction that they're getting is something that doesn't make sense to them on a logical level, but on an emotional level, it makes perfect sense. So it, it just, it helped make that connection there. Whereas somebody is speaking very much left brain and not really getting that, those right brain cues in that interaction. Exactly. On top of that, you have to look at the uh, emotions. So the left brain is basically has happiness and anger, mm -hmm. right? Or the right brain holds guilt and shame. And, you know, it, it helps to control the whole breadth of emotions. So, and some of those you really need to assess and see, okay, what emotions do this, does this person have access to? Mm -hmm. And then um, part of that training is would I would assume would be possible, like, improving emotional reactions so they can understand that and help develop that side of their, their brain. Mm, very interesting. So one, one thing that I'm curious about is the relationship between emotions or not feeling emotions and pain. And then like what your thoughts are on the journey that, that I had gone through where the moment I was actually able to begin to truly alleviate this back pain began with me essentially feeling an emotion that was repressed for like the last 25 years. So I'm curious, like, what is that relationship between people not feeling their emotions and feeling pain in their body? And when they start feeling the emotions and the pain subsiding? I think the, the entrance point on that, it would be around the uh, motor patterning and then also the sensory integration. So I kind of have this hierarchy or this pyramid working up where we look at primitive reflexes, posture reflexes, uh, motor control, and then sensory integration. And then we work on up from there. Mm -hmm. So I think on this would be a lot of this would be postural uh, because memories do lock into postures. Mm. And so, and you can, it's easy to see that somebody is slouched over. Well, they're going to be in their head thinking a lot more. They're going to be uh, less confident where your shoulders are down and back, chest is out. Mm -hmm. And so you'll, you'll notice even on the micro level, like, postures, uh, you know, how much sway you have in on your back. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a more extreme example, I see this with, uh, like fibromyalgia patients that I deal with where almost hundred percent of the time there's a disc injury in their neck. And so you have that when you have a trauma, usually an emotional trauma with a pretty significant physical trauma, mm -hmm. those tend to latch into each other. And so part of this is you have to get out of that pattern, um, uh, that physical postural pattern but you can't really get rid of the pain unless you address the emotional stuff that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I keep going. I kind of, uh, I group injuries into two things. One's the acute injury that you got, you know, you fell off your bike, hurt your knee. Okay. But the other one is the, you know, it might be an injury. That's a, a physical manifestation of an emotional injury. And so, yeah, you fell off your bike, but at the same time, your mom's the one that pushed you over. Mm. And so now you've got trust issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have to unlock those together um, down the road if you have chronic knee pain. Very interesting. So it needs to be like a, a holistic approach, essentially. Yeah, that's the way you unlock these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you and I have a mutual friend, uh, Dr. Cody Goldman, and he likes to say that the body is the loudspeaker, like for the consciousness that exists within and whatever's going on there. What, what's your view on that? Oh, absolutely. It, it will display and, you know, it's like a, it's like a giant equivalent like TV. You can watch somebody mm. if you have a keen eye on how they move. You can see where their tension is holding. You can see, uh, sometimes you can actually deduce like why they have certain pain programs or why they're in certain emotional states. And, you know, if you know what you're looking for and you can even have words with them, or you can pick up on their energetic field, you can, uh, put an input to help make a response and improve their system. Hmm. 
That's really interesting. One, one thing, I, so I don't have this fully thought out yet, but perhaps you, you have uh, some thoughts on this, but one thing I was thinking about yesterday, I had a client who called me and he was talking about how he has this, you know, tooth that's broken and it was broken because it was a cavity at one point and that now he's going to go get it fixed. And I thought to myself that I had not the same issue, but a similar one where I had a feeling that had fallen out years ago and I haven't gotten it fixed. Like I, I hadn't gotten it fixed for years. And then out of nowhere, I just have to get this inspiration to go and like schedule an appointment and get it fixed. It's a very simple procedure. But what was interesting about the two of us is every time I coach my clients, I notice that a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with is stuff that I've recently deal with, dealt with or that I am currently dealing with. It's fascinating how that works. But what, one thing that I thought was interesting is I have this book. Uh, it's called The Psychic Roots of Disease uh, by Dr. Hammer, the German New Medicine Practice, and it basically traces back all the psychological conflicts and uh, their correlation with physical ailment. So I'm reading up on like cavities, broken teeth and that type of thing. And it says something around the conflict of feeling like you can't bite back. Like you, you want to, but you wouldn't dare because you're afraid of the consequences of what could happen. So in other words, the way that that might translate metaphorically speaking into practical everyday life is that somebody's not, they're afraid to stand up for themselves or to call someone out, so to speak, that, that biting back type of thing. And what was interesting is like, he has recently overcome that emotional conflict of standing up for himself and no longer fearing the consequences of him standing up for himself, holding his ground and calling someone out if it's warranted in a healthy way. I had the same thing. So what I found interesting about that is that for years I've had this thing where, you know, it wasn't for me, it wasn't painful. Just food would get stuck, you know, in that, in that gap and it would hurt when it was there. And then out of nowhere, randomly, <laughs> I get this inclination to go get it fixed after I've resolved that conflict of the thing that was preventing me from biting back. So I found that to be really like interesting and <laughs> kind of like, you know, really cool, magical, yet kind of like eerie way how like this thought happened to come in as I resolve that emotional conflict to go and take the action to get this thing fixed. What's your your thought on that? Well, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, you know. I did order the book that we talked about. That, that's so I, <laughs> I have it right here. So I'm really interested to dig in yeah. <laughs> on this book. Um, you know, from a, I'm an acupuncturist as well. So even from that standpoint, we look at the teeth um, and I don't, I don't do anything directly with the teeth, but I do pay attention to alignment and jaw. I do a lot of cranial work to make sure that alignment connects there. Mm -hmm. They're the, the teeth are mapped out. They're one of the first, um, things to develop embryologically. And so it's kind of like acupuncture. We have channels that run through from your fingertips into your chest, from your toes up to the back of your, you know, the top of your head. Um, you each tooth is intimately connected with different organs. Mm. And so if you have a break in your barrier, you have an issue where your bite doesn't go down, um, correctly, like you're going to disrupt you know, we talk, I always say like, we talk about these motor patterns, right? Cause it's always sensory feedback into your brain. Well, if you're biting down and you have a tooth that's partially missing a molar, you're not making a full connection on that side of your mouth. So now your pterygoid muscles or your uh, temporalis isn't activating equally and bi bilaterally from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. So then what are we doing? We're reinforcing sensory input that's imbalanced into our brain. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have this constant feedback. So we talk about these postures locked in with emotions. Yeah. I mean, we can look at it from right through there. We can look at the activation of what's called the homunculus in the brain mm -hmm. and with uh, the parts that do some of the emotional work and see, yeah, could this be a, a very valid uh, way of looking at stuff? I, I think there's some merit to it. I don't, I don't know how you go about studying it, but I do think there's going to be some merit to it. And uh, it's something we want to look at in the big context of the person. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, that's super interesting. I just, I love how all of this connects, right? Because a lot of the time, I think our mind tricks us into thinking that it's just, you know, some belief that we're holding or some thought pattern um, that is causing the issue or some drama that we're experiencing in our everyday life. But the reality is it's like, there are so many clues just like within the body 
and the body is like letting us know. And in, in a lot of ways, like I always use this, this phrase to help clients remember regarding the absence of feeling emotions, which is what you resist will persist and what is fully felt will melt, right? Like give them a little rhyme to, to remember that because the, the, the calls of the body seem to just get louder and louder, the more that we don't listen to them. <laughs> and then, and then eventually they, they, they become loud enough where you can't not pay attention to them at any point. Yeah. So that's, you know, kind of going up where we talk about the sensory integration, right? You've told me you basically disconnected from your body when you're having the injury, mm-hmm. but I, I really want to question that as whether that's when you disconnected from your body or a, were you never like really connected to it mm-hmm. or B, did you disconnect earlier? And so you had to do movements at end range in order to feel activation or inputs. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's just talk about this from like an, an eating standpoint, right? We have a lot of people that overeat because that's the only time they can feel distension in their stomach. Mm. And so that's the only time that they, you know, they just keep overeating because they, they have a lack of body awareness to feel, oh, I have a cup of food in my stomach or I drank a glass of water. Mm. Like, do I really need, you know, the 20 ounce Pepsi or could eight ounces do it? So Mm. I think this is like, kind of goes in with, you know, why when you go to the store now versus the store before, like you'd have a a six ounce, you know, soda and now you have a 24 ounce because people don't really um, have, have disconnected from their body and they don't really feel that distinction. And then we end up with people that go to the gym and, you know, they're 200 pounds and they're deadlifting five, 600 pounds, right? Mm. Can can they really feel it at 220, 230 pounds? Like you should feel that stretch in your thighs, in your calf, or are you blocking that out so that you can achieve a higher weight just to get, I mean, almost like that breaking sensation on your knees. So you know that you actually did something and made a connection to your body. So do you abuse yourself in order to, to feel your body or are you actually in the state where, oh, I can feel it? Wow. <laughs> I, well, I feel personally attacked. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, that, that was def, That was the story of my life of how I used to work out, right? It had to be, I had to redline in order to think that I did something productive in order to, to feel like I accomplished something in my workout. And it had to be every single time. Now, I think what's fascinating about that, um, one, one of the, the guys that inspired this type of mindset for me is uh, Faraz Zahabi, which is George St. Pierre's uh, former coach in the UFC. And this guy is brilliant when the way he thinks about training. And one of the things that he talked about is how when, he's, when he has his guys training, he doesn't want them to be going to like a 10. He wants them to be going to like a seven, six or seven, so that they can maintain a flow state in their, in their training. And so that they can come back and train the next day and be really consistent. Right. And his, his whole thing is like work out to the point where you feel it energize you and then like stop and then come back and do it again and again and again. And when it comes to like skills training, like for jujitsu or MMA or kickboxing, you know, they can, people can come back without being super sore and they can execute their movements properly. So what I found interesting is like my workouts now, uh, I'll typically do every day, my ideal day, right? It doesn't always happen like this, but my ideal day is about 30 minutes of yoga. Then I do about 20 minutes of resistance training. And then I do like an hour of jujitsu. And I feel amazing when I do that. Like I don't, I used to work out resistance training for like a whole hour, didn't do any yoga or anything like that. But that exact like recipe of, of exercise brings a lot more energy and mobility to my body. And I've actually found myself having better gains in muscle by doing that 20 minutes versus trying to make it an hour every time where I'd eventually end up getting injured because I was redlining myself. I was going to that breaking point, like you were describing. So I a hundred percent agree with that. That's been <laughs> what I've been experiencing lately. Yeah, it's great. So, you know, yoga is fantastic. Um, like Qigong as well for actually getting to know your body, where it is in space. We call it proprioception. 
And so, you know, you can go in, you can go into a pose and you have to focus in on your breathing. So you're basically going internal and feeling where everything is. Okay. So, you know, your arms slid underneath your chest, you're feeling a little bit of a stretch in the backside of your shoulder. Well, you just made a conscious connection from your brain down to your shoulder on top of like your knees. Now you feel your knees, right? And so, you know, those movements are designed to help you reconnect with your body and master your breathing and master your mind state and connect it all into one. So it's a really excellent way of going about it. Um, I could tell you even like some of the research I was reading like this past past two weeks talking about VO2 max, all right? And I've done, you know, some endurance runs and 50Ks. And, you know, with that, I'll flat out tell you, I disconnected from my body to be able to go do those events, but, you know, I had to come back in and reconnect to it. Um, and even looking at that, like I've, I've traditionally trained in zone four, which is a higher aerobic phase. And, but my VO2 max doesn't move. It's just, it's stayed at what it is. And as I've gone through and I train, like you're saying, train less, you train at half hour, maybe an hour at zone three. Um, I noticed my capacity is going up. Recovery is speeding up significantly. Body composition changes more. And I, I stat this stuff meticulously with all the, you know, fun devices I have in my clinic. Um, and I see this on the patients as we, as we get more in tune with our body and make that connection. And then you realize you don't have to work out as hard. You can go and you can listen and say, your, your body will tell you, it will always tell you, you talk about how, you know, Dr. Cody was saying it's a, it's a billboard for what you're feeling. Yeah, it absolutely is. Mm. You just have to listen. It, it will talk. Like it will shout, it will whisper. Um, and you use all different levels of volume, but just, you know, if you feel it and your body says, that's it, walk away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of, uh, had some coaches that they basically shared with me one, one piece of coaching that I, I take with me into like my workouts and, and whatnot. They'll basically tell me that before I go into anything or before I have some grand plan to go into something really intense, uh, for example, like we were talking about Kokoro, right? And you and I have talked about that as well, because I'm going to be beginning my training for that in May. And when I was talking to them, they're like, just check in with your body as though you're talking to a client. Like, just ask it like, hey, are you, are you up for this? Or if it's something that you've already planned to do, be like, hey, I'm going to be asking a lot of you, what do you need in order to, you know, be able to show up and to feel good about this? And so sometimes I'll ask that question and I'll just have things pop up in my mind. It's like, eat this food or like stretch for this long or, you know, book a, a float tank session or book a massage. And it'll like, it'll just tell me like, it'll, the thought will pop up in my mind upon asking those questions. And as long as I listen to them, then I maintain this rapport with my body where my body doesn't feel as though I'm against it and just trying to like make it do stuff, <laughs> but it feels like, okay, we're a team. Yeah. <laughs> I find that, I find that really interesting is, is that, that, that type of communication. Yeah. It, it will always let you know, uh, I can tell you after doing my last race, um, I, I misjudged on one of the, the markers and didn't have enough water after mile, I think it was mile 17 mm -hmm. and it was six miles to the next, to the next station. So I ran out like two miles after that. And this is one of those where he had a thousand foot elevation climb followed by roughly another 20, uh, 2000 elevation climb that kind of rolled. I was tanked and I can tell you like my body wouldn't let me run for weeks after that. It wouldn't let me leave the house without grabbing a drink. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was upset. <laughs> yeah. Very, even, even to this day, like if, even if I drive to the office, my body's like, go to the fridge, grab a grab a, you know, Pellegrino, a bottle of water, you know, fill up. I always have a, a bottle with me, no, no matter where I go. And part of that, I think is still to appease it. So I didn't ask for permission, but now I'm still asking for forgiveness. You yeah. know, from yeah, your body's like, I never forgive you for that shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's good. You're making amends. Clearly. <laughs> we all have to do it. it doesn't matter. Back up. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been having to do the exact same thing with mine because I put it through the ringer for so long. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine your jujitsu training really uh, takes a toll. And, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, most guys have played around with it. You know, that, you know, I did for six months and realized it's definitely not not <laughs> something for me. Uh, but, wow. Tell me a little bit more about what kind of impact you, you get with that and 
what's the difference between before and after being able to sense your body? So before I could, I could have that sensing that connection with the body. What would happen is I would just like, I was describing before I red line. And I do that when I was doing jujitsu as well, not just like with workouts. So I'd always roll really hard. And then after a few days of that in a row, like I'd just be in pain, like I'd be sore. I couldn't even go and like do technique without being, you know, like in some kind of a joint pain or just excessive soreness. And I wasn't giving my body what it needed because I wasn't even asking. So I didn't know what it needed. I was giving it what I thought it needed, but turns out it wasn't what, what it required in that moment. Following the, the connection, one thing that, that has helped tremendously is there, there's a few things. It's like giving the body what it needs in terms of the stretching, the mobility. So the yoga has been really, really key. Like I got, I got a signal at one point in time. I got like the signs from the universe. You could say that just told me to start doing yoga every day. And I, I listened and thankfully I did because maintaining that habit in my life has been tremendously valuable in terms of my ability to recover as well as to understand my body where it is in space and time. The other thing, and this is, you know, this certainly correlated with the yoga, but in jujitsu, I've been able to actually start being much more mindful with my breathing. And I breathe nasally, like through the entire time where I used to like be a mouth breather at certain points when I get tired. But even when I'm really tired, I still breathe through my, my nose. Um, and it actually allows me to perform despite being really tired or gassed out. But the likelihood of me even getting gassed out when I'm breathing through my nose is very low, right? Because I'm very precise, very intentional with every movement. So that has helped a lot and has also helped with my recovery. And now I, I don't go hard the entire time. I just, I'm basically moving very fluidly. And then when it's time to execute a technique, that's when I'll like, bring the tension or the intensity in, but I won't have the intensity the entire time. I'll just kind of flow and then like go. And the breathing allows me to control my state in a very profound way that allows that to be possible. Yeah. So, I mean, as you, I love it. You talk about breathing with that because that's one of the tools I use with my clients on regulating heart rate. Mm. You can do the same exercise and you breathe through your nose and we can target zone three and zone four. You open up, start breathing through your mouth. Eh, that's a lot easier to push into anaerobic zone. So if we need to have that kind of training and really the, the difference on physical, I almost say exertion doesn't have to change that much. Mm-hmm. So I know it's one thing that I'll consciously use in order to have a nice profile on my biometric device to be like, oh, and I'm still getting some zone five training on this and I'll use it with the clients uh, because I mean, just nose breathing can regulate your lungs. It regulates your diaphragm. I mean, even on that, like I'm talking from a jujitsu standpoint, right? Your nose breathing, you have better control of your diaphragm. Your core just became a lot stronger because about one third of your diaphragm is used for lumbar stabilization, low back stabilization. Mm. So if you're rapidly breathing through your mouth, your stability is going downhill. Yeah. And so, you know, that allows you to make those, those more fluid movements and have the reserves in place. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's really breathing is such a critical critical component, uh, and then if we tie that in with some of like the supple leopard things, right? So a lot of people will be able to use their jaw, and you can see this if you can clench your jaw to make your spine and core stronger. Like I don't recommend people doing that in a normal circumstance, but you know when you're when you're in a fight, you know for the way you're you're doing that. Like you're going to want every tiny little advantage you can get. So if you're not having to open your mouth to breathe and you can clench your jaw for that short burst of, of time, you can stabilize your spine and make this all more solid. So your arms and your extremities have more fluidity to them. So you actually be quicker and more stable that just from sense. changing your breathing. Yeah. That's awesome. That's actually really cool. Cool way to think about it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, on top of that, you know, we talked about teeth earlier, right? Yeah. Nose breathing widens your jaw. So it it opens up your sinuses, your, your airways, but it will allow your jaw to expand. And so your teeth can fit better to, you know, fit together better. And if you would be just solely a nose breather from birth, your chance of getting, um, 
you know, wisdom teeth uh, that need to be surgically removed it goes down pretty significantly. There's other parts that go into that with chewing too, but breathing is a huge part of that. That's that's fascinating. Uh, it, it's something that I'm certainly become more curious about lately is breathing and the effect that it has because it is the most fundamental part of the physiology that you have influence over and that you can start making changes like literally now by changing the breathing. And I think what, one thing that's interesting, I've been reading this book or listening to this book called The Wedge. Um, have you ever heard of it before? I have not heard of that one. So it, the guy who wrote it is a, he's like a Wim Hof instructor that has been, ex, uh, has been exploring what he calls the wedge. And the wedge is essentially the, when you have an experience in life, like it's not just your internal world that's, that's, that's um, you know, changing your state and whatnot, but it's also the environment. And so an example of a wedge would be a cold plunge for building resilience to cold or to stress the wedge. So a wedge is a cold plunge. That's a tool that can be used, but the wedge itself is me bringing a state of calm into that experience where my adrenaline is shooting up and I'm just sitting there very chill. So what I'm doing is I'm anchoring a state of calm to a situation that would normally cause me to like freak out or cause my body to freak out. And I'm instead bringing that wedge in so that my response in other situations that would probably cause the same thing is one of calm where I can think clearly and execute in the way that I need to do it. So in that book, he was talking about Wim Hof breathing and the benefits of it and how this one coach was using it for his athletes. But then the coach stopped using it because he said that the, the only, he's like, it, it, it brings incredible endurance to these athletes, but it, only while they're doing it. When they're not doing it, it's not doing the same thing. So what he started doing is he would create this, or he'd give them this breathing exercise to test their like CO2 tolerance. He'd have them take three breaths and on the third one, take a big inhale and then exhale really slowly and put a stopwatch to see how long you can like, not, not hold the exhale, but hold the breath, like including the exhale, like setting that timer. And basically the more tolerance somebody has for CO2, the better they're going to be able to perform under pressure because that's the thing that causes that suffocating anxious feeling, but also even off the field, the better they're going to be able to deal with life and the situations that might bring up um, anxiety or stress or doubt. Um, so I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that's a big impact on blood pH mm -hmm. is, um, you know, as you dump your carbon dioxide, you get the anxiety from the inside out. And so that's a, that's a huge part of the uh, part of this is, you know, balancing biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Um, we talk about, you talked about that wedge though. That's, that's that sensory integration and motor control patterns you know, going straight in with each other. Right. And being able to differentiate or, or sense, okay, this is a hormonal response. This is an adrenaline response. Mm -hmm. So being able to, I don't know, almost like an observer stance, like my body is, is going to through this, mm -hmm. right. And you're not separated from it, but you don't have to be in it to experience it, but you still can feel it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's kind of like that next step. That's almost at the top of the pyramid where you work your way right back down into it. So where that wedge becomes so valuable. Um, yeah. And there, there is some things like that, where if you bypass some of the physiology to do the, the biohacking side of stuff, like you never really fix the underlying um, area, right? Mm. I don't want to say it's an issue or a concern, but like you never, you didn't really address that and you just try to bypass it with some of these really fascinating tools and, and tricks mm -hmm. where you want to do both, right? You want to have the capacity to use that technique, but you also want to have resilience in your system where, yeah, my underlying physiology is top notch. And what did I do to improve that? So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of along that same lines of what we see a lot of people now, you know, the current big trend is, um, you know, like Ozimbic, right. And so people are, are losing weight pretty rapidly on a medication. Mm. Um, but part of that is, are you, are you actually using that time when you're on it to retrain your system and sensitivities? Right. And so 
Probably not for, for a lot, a lot of people. <laughs> I know. And that's one of the things I have a lot of, a lot of patients now, you know, I'm a chiropractor, so I don't prescribe medicines, but I have a lot of patients that come in and I, I do a lot of body work and, and sensory training. And, you know, as a tool, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you can use the time with, um, you know, to re- to reprogram the brain for sensitivity. Right. And so same okay. thing with this. Yeah. I, um, so I think what, what's interesting about what we're talking about here is to essentially correct the underlying root cause of what might be causing the large burst in emotions or like the, let's say the inappropriate level, <laughs> disproportionate level of, of emotional reaction that somebody has. So I think the a really cool combination of these things is what I do in my work is we release what is what I like to call emotional debt. Like that's like the big core of the entire process. And the emotional debt is unprocessed negative emotions, traumas, incongruent values, inner conflicts, or even external conflicts that somebody has with other people, right? Removing all the emotional debt from that person's system at the level of their nervous system, at the level of the unconscious allows them to deal with the root causes of those things. And then when you pair that with putting some of these processes into place, like these wedges, these tools, it allows them to ultimately not accumulate more emotional debt in the, in the future and actually have a sense of emotional prosperity. But if somebody just does those biohacks, those things to bypass the emotion, then what they're doing is they're just making a bunch. It's, it's, if we're using like the money analogy, since I call it emotional debt, it's like they're making a bunch of money, but never paying off any of their credit cards. And like those things are still stacking up with interest. So they'll still get triggered. And that's the, the situation, or at least like what the, the type of person I think of is when you see somebody who seemingly has it all, they have all the, these beautiful things in their life, all these things to be grateful for. They have the money, they have the house, they have people loving them, the admiration, yet they still get really triggered and like they go off the handle when, when something happens. To me, what, what I look at that as is that's a person who has a lot of emotional debt and has used these things to bypass that emotional debt into a place of success, but still hasn't cleared those underlying root causes. So like the biohacking, the bypassing almost in some sense makes it worse, makes it more confusing for that person. Cause they're like, I have it all. Like, why am I still feeling this way? So it's an interesting point that you bring up there of, of really getting to the root cause of those things, correcting yeah. that behavior. That's like, you know, building a skyscraper on a sinkhole. Right. Exactly. Like, what, what, like the it'll most- last for a little while and then it'll collapse under a big, a big wind. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. You talk about like, you know, going in and the emotional side and like, I think we've used that word programming, right? So the way somebody responds to it and you look at like, okay, why did they develop that program or that response initially? Like what, you know, did they miss out on some developmental cue and so they had to make up their own rules or did they learn from you know did they imprint off of a family member or somebody else that gave them that particular model right and so you kind of have to look at well why did they do that and then if 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 they still have those issues is it still going to be there they're going to rewrite another program that's really similar to what they have mm-hmm. did they actually get out of it or are they just going to like kind of shift it from one to the other so that's where you want to look to see Oh, maybe they still have these um, developmental delays or these neurologic imbalances. And so it's, it, you know, again, it's like each person needs a different entry point. Um, you know, in my clinic, like somebody would has a, a knee issue. I can use an Arthur stem. I can use an activator. I can use my hands. I can use a stretch. I can send them to PT. I can do it, you know, whatever tool, but everybody has their individual key mm-hmm. that they need for, to unlock that specific concern. And so, you know, our job, you know, yours as a coach, mine as a, as a doctor is to, to figure out what does that person need right now in this moment to make that correction. And then also what can we do to prevent this from reoccurring? You know, I love seeing my patients, but man, I do not want to see them multiple times a week. I want them, I want them in, I want them well, and I want them out. And then I want them to refer somebody else in, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, cause I want to see that they, you know, that they've taken that correction and they've taken the advice and the steps to make themselves healthier and better for the long term, And just, you know, basically allow the body to heal itself. I love that you, you have that mentality and that intention with your, with your patients. It's the same intention I have with my clients for me. 
I'm most elated when I see that they're self-sustainable with what they have learned and what, you know, how the processes have affected their lives. Um, I find that a lot in the coaching industry and even I've certainly heard about it in the chiropractic industry of like this whole idea of creating a dependency type model where like they always got to come back. And, you know, earlier in my coaching career, you know, I, that's what I was taught. It's like, have them keep coaching with you and, you know, this and that. And after about three years of that, I was like, I, this is not the way, (laughs) right? Like, like I can't fully invest and like really coach somebody to the the degree that's going to transform their lives. If I'm always thinking in the back of my head, I need to re-enroll them in more coaching. And so I, I really appreciate that you have that intention to really have them healed and self-sustainable in, in their lives so that they don't keep having these problems that they, you know, they, they take the protocols and the, the things that you give them so that they can essentially live a better life where they're vibrant, they're happy, they're fulfilled, whatever it is that they want to be. Yeah. So, you know, just speaking to like that model, that's a, that's a poverty model, right? Poverty mentality. So you got to hold on to what you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell you like there are more than enough people that need the help that I can provide. There's more than enough people that need the help that you can provide and they're, they're out there. Um, so, I, I mean, we get referrals all day. I mean, the phone rings nonstop and I'm very blessed with that because we built that model where I want people to be corrected and for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. It just breaks my heart when you have, and there's different philosophies. Let me, let me step back a little bit. There are different philosophies out there, right? So like in chiropractic world, it's nervous system stimulation repeatedly, right? It's also exposure to somebody that's wellness-based. Like, you know, I'm in West Virginia, so some of our population isn't the fittest. We don't have access to the highest in gyms. We have some yoga studios in my town because, you know, my town is more progressive than some of the others, but some of the outlying counties, they don't even have anything like a yoga studio or a wellness center. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you, you want to give that person what they need. And for that, it might be, 10, 15 visits with you. And, you know, I try to walk around as a billboard, right? So I try to stay in shape. I work out, I eat really healthy. Mm -hmm. I uh, work on relationships in order to be a, a signpost for these people that you can have this. If you will just start listening to yourself and making the steps to be improved. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if you're going to be doing any of this type of work, it's really important to be that billboard for the result that you provide uh, to, to be living it, right? <laughs> not not to be hiding hiding away from it because that ultimately what that does is that disconnects us from the people that we're helping. Right. And, you know, the person needs to connect with themselves, right? So they need to connect with you, at least on the superficial level first and see, oh, that person lives the life that at least in some aspects I want to mimic. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, oh yeah. So they're smiling and their eyes are open and they're, they're bright and they're vibrant and they have good energy. So you have to provide something. You have to go to where they are as a practitioner. You need to go to where they are and then pull them to where they should probably be in their best interest. And so you have to have some level of attraction um, for them and work on that. Agreed. Yeah. I I think that's the the way to operate. I mean, and just for yourself as a practitioner or as a, you know, somebody who's proliferating, pr- proliferating this type of work and philosophy out into the world. I mean, just for yourself, it's a, it's a way to fill your own bucket, right? So that you're able to serve at a higher levels to, to live the things that you teach. And then there's the congruency. There's not the compartmentalization that eats away at people. <laughs> Instead, you're, you're fully congruent, authentic, and sincere in your approach. I think that's, yeah. that's the way that brings us to, I think, our highest fulfillment and our highest level of contribution to ourselves as well as the world around us. Yeah. So like when that line between coach Victor and Victor are very, when that line's very, very minimal, Mm -hmm. that's when you've achieved that high level of happiness in your own personal life. And then your clients can see that and experience it. It's very true. I think one thing that I had no idea was going to like become a result that again, it falls into this category of what I like to characterize as blessings that I didn't know how to ask for yet are just something I, I get to live and be in gratitude with. 
So one of the things with that, and it's been my goal to start to, to create a thinner and thinner line with, between coach Victor and Victor. And what has happened is in the one-on-one coaching, I wasn't that the, it hit a limit, right? Like I, I could become friends with my clients and I, for the most part, always do. But where it really started to become much more seamless was when I got into training people in coaching. So not actually coaching them directly one-on-one, but actually training them and empowering them with the skills and then giving them a container and environment where they were able to take those skills, work on them with each other, create the same level of results that I would create with them because I'm teaching them exactly what I do. And then what ends up, when that, what ended up happening especially following this last um, training that I did, this liberation leadership training that I call it, is we had a container of nine people and they got this transformation. They got all the skills that they needed to, to create transformation in other people's lives as well. And then we did an integration process and we're still in the middle of it right now um, at the time of this recording where I basically, part of their homework is coaching each other. So they're getting the same types of results that they would get with me one-on-one, but they're doing it with each other and they're empowered to have that level of skill set. So the result that happened or one of the realities that I'm experiencing right now that I didn't know how to ask for yet is probably better than anything I could have conceived in my mind is that some of the students are really like diving into this with an intention of mastery around it. And they're not just my students anymore, but they're also friends But the one that surprised me is that some of them are becoming my teachers and finding things that I didn't really realize. And that blows my mind is like the people that I'm training that we just trained back in January are now bringing things to the table that I've never thought of in my own craft and teaching me. And that is just like, holy shit. Like, like this is amazing. This is such a cool reality to be able to have that. So I love the the intention of thinning that line as as much as as we can while still maintaining the integrity of the container so that people can experience the results that they want. Yeah, well, I mean, congratulations to you for putting the ego aside and learning <laughs> from your students. And yeah, that's a, anybody we interact with, you can learn something from. There's always something out there and you just have to be looking for it and be willing to receive it mm-hmm. in this case, right? I I love teaching. I know, um, I mean, I didn't really fulfill, feel fulfilled in practice until I started getting associates, um, along the way. And, you know, some of my, some of my favorite memories were learning and teaching some of my professors Mm -hmm. things as we went along. Right. So even in, even in chiropractic school, like, you know, you were there to learn and then it's like, well, what about about this i picked this up from another guy and what do you think of that and they're like oh what i didn't know that and um you know one of my one of my most rewarding moments um was so i had a i had a mentor who was just this amazing wizard he hired me straight out of chiropractic school i mean it's just uh, the story is, is just unreal um anyway so like years later like i i would drive six hours to go get adjusted by him mm-hmm. and like we would plan it and he finally, after all those years, he quit telling me what to do. He's like, just, just do it, you know, do what you do. Mm-hmm. He's like, I've never thought about doing it this way. He's like, I'm going to start using this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to have the, this mentor that I held up in such high esteem, because, you know, we worked with some of the most difficult cases that you could ever come across, um, to, to be able to, to teach and, um, from, from that. So it's, it's quite an honor to be in that light. Then also it was a reflection on him. And what he taught and how he communicated. So it's, it's, it's a good way to, to feel empowered, right. By being able to learn from people that you've taught. Most definitely. I think it's such a, an amazing feeling being a student and then being able to teach the person who taught you something that they didn't think of. Um, I I got to experience that um, with a current friend slash mentor of mine. Um, the one that we were talking about at the beginning of the call, right. I went out to Montana and he's, you know, he's mentoring me in this space uh, with these trainings uh, because he's a master trainer, you know, has been doing this for, for many, many years. And what was beautiful was that while we were there, we were developing a new coaching model, a new uh, liberation session breakthrough model that we're going to be teaching 
I'm going to be teaching it individually at my events and my trainings, and he's going to be teaching it at his trainings, but it's us kind of coming together. And what was really amazing experience where he gave me that same grace, that same experience that, you know, of putting the ego aside and like learning from me was he's like, Hey, like, I, I also want to learn from you. Like I, I, I have a lot to learn here. And it was a beautiful interaction to not, to, to be able to be teacher, student, and friend to somebody all at the same time, I think are the most fulfilling relationships you could possibly have. So I got to have that experience, got to feel that exactly what you're describing. And now my students are getting to feel it. And I'm sure some of your associates are getting to feel it. And like the creation of this environment really empowers people's creative gifts and innate wisdom to come online to be more effective than we could have ever conceived. Yeah. You know, it's the, the collaboration on this. I have, I have one friend and she's a, she's a chiropractor, but all I have to do is like pick up the phone and put her number in. And then I look at it and I'm like, Oh, I got an idea. In fact, so I was, I was driving over to see a, a mutual acquaintance of ours last week. And I was in the hills of, or the mountains of Maryland. So like cell phone service was spotty and she called and it got disconnected. I mean like this. And in that moment, I like had these, like we call them thought flashes. That's the, that's the kind of the chiropractic term when something comes in. Right. And these thought flashes of like, Oh, this is what my center is going to be called. This is what that program is going to be. And then as we're on the call, like I needed to stop and pull over and write stuff down. Cause it was just so much I couldn't keep in my brain. And she was talking about one thing I was talking about another, but like, you know, and somewhere in the middle, like we were, we were connected and I was like having all this download of, well, oh, this is where things need to go. Mm. Um, so you know, part of that is just being in the presence of somebody with a huge energy field mm-hmm. and you bringing your energy field and it's exponential to have this growth that you both can, can have at the, at the opportune time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think what you're talking about is really important, right? If somebody's energy can interact with another person's energy and create new ideas, new perspectives, just by being around each other or just by being in communication with each other, that's when you're really tapping into, I, I think, a huge power when it comes to learning, when it comes to uh, innovation in processes and whatnot. The um, One of my, th- that same guy that I was talking about, that mentor, he what he calls it is like, presence coaching or presence teaching where it's not even like what you're saying. It's not even the words or the structures of the fancy like data that you're bringing up, but it's your presence in the presence of that person or people that is creating this effect that you can't verbalize. You can't describe it with words, but it's impacting people at a, at a level that we can't consciously conceive at, but is happening much faster and in much bigger magnitude than just our words alone. Right. So that's part of that body language, you know, that's part of being able to read somebody's face. And, you know, usually those, those events occur when you have visual with somebody. I mean, it's, it's even better when they're there in person and you can see the entire body language and you can see the face, you know, but I can tell you, like, even, even now, as I'm looking at you and, you know, we're making this connection on this call, right. I still can't see, like, I don't know how long your beard is, you know, cause your microphone <laughs> right in front of it. It's, it's been a while since we've been together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, are, are your, are your, you know, feet fidgeting? Are you yeah, spinning around your chair? I can see you're not spinning around your chair. <laughs> like all those little body language, you know, things matter. So, you know, you're calm and at ease, your shoulders are down the back, your eyes are like nice and open. And so we, I can see that. Uh, but it's also really kind of cool when you can feel it off the person directly as well. Yeah. When you can be in, in that actual proximity. So I think it, it, what's cool is like all of this comes full circle to, you know, building that connection, the brain and the body and creating that very smooth connection so that things are seamless processes are seamless in the, in the body and the mind um, in unison. So I have, I have two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is, where can people find out more about you if they're interested in your work or learning from you? Uh, so I have uh, two websites. So my clinic website is Enliven, E-N-L-I-V-E-N-W-V. It's Enliven Wellness. And then my, my programming is, is in InBrain, E-N-B-R-A-I-N dot health. Um, so I have two different programs. The, the InBrain is for 
uh, that's based more on my neurodevelopmental model. So that's where I can get in, really dig in with somebody, work on those lower levels, the neurology and brain body connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other, my other practice, my, my chiropractic and clinical nutrition practices on that enliven, uh, wellness website. Beautiful. Awesome. And my last question, and I'll definitely make sure to put those links in the, uh, in the show notes. My last question for you is the reason why I'll, I'll preface it by saying this, the reason why I do <clears throat> these interviews on my podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason why I do these interviews on my podcast, uh, I call them the liberated life interviews. It's a special segment where we go outside of the bounds of Zen stoic. Zen Stoic philosophy is a philosophy that aims at creating liberation within a person. Like that's, that's the experience that it's, it's pointing at, but the philosophy itself is not liberation. So I like to go outside the bounds and bring in people that have a perspective that also points towards liberation. So my question for you is what does it mean to you to live a liberated life? Oh, that's, that's not being trapped by your default programming, right? So that's being able to realize that you were trapped with these primitive reflexes, these specific posture reflexes, and that you have these set motor patterns, that you have the set sensory integration uh, deficiencies, that your language is off, your your um, academics, your thinking patterns are off. So being liberated is being able to acknowledge that you may have concerns at each one of these levels and realizing as you make a change there, you can make the change all the way up to the system so that you can achieve this highest level of thought patterning and consciousness. So it's knowing that you actually have the keys to fix yourself and you just might need a little bit of help pointing to where it is, but that you're more than capable of being perfect and you are perfect. We just need to maybe fine tune some parts of it. Beautiful. Jimmy, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This was an awesome conversation. Certainly flew by. <laughs> I'm sure we'll uh, we'll definitely have a lot more to talk about soon. Uh, thanks, Victor. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoy these conversations. Likewise.